everybody. Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Justin, or Soft Pillows, and this is... This is Derek, or Bird That Steals. Still don't know what that means. You still don't know what that means? Well, um, maybe he's stolen young Philly's hearts throughout his age. I, I, I don't know. Do birds that steals steal their lovers' hearts. I, I, I've never thought that deeply about birds before because, as we all know, birds aren't real. <laughs> they just miniature dinosaurs, man. They're, they're robots that the government <laughs> replaced in the 50s and 60s with a mass genocide. Or whatever the You're being sarcastic. Yeah. Have you not seen? Yeah, I've seen the yeah the, that interview with that dude that was just like yeah birds aren't real. Oh yeah, no, I don't buy it. Oh okay, all right, I'm not cool. Yeah. You're just you're making fun. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I make it fun. I mean, I yeah, I, I would imagine that Erickson probably doesn't follow that as well, but I mean, I guess we could be wrong. We could be. I don't see him as the type of dude, even though I know nothing about him, that would indicate that he doesn't think birds are real i mean uh i've been duck hunting and pheasant hunting and cleaned these things and opened them up and you know i i know they are not machines <laughs> so uh, <laughs> right. I, I can safely assume birds are in fact real right yes yes i would agree i also used to pheasant hunt so Totally, totally understand. Yeah. So what's been new, man? You know, kind of bummed that I had to work all week because it was the, the girlfriend's birthday uh, two days ago. Uh, so, huh? but she's she's got a friend from, her best friend from Texas visiting and that has been occupying her time. But I just feel so bad that I can't partake so to speak because i work two jobs on the weeks that i do not have my children uh, so uh I, I don't know i had two glasses of uh some brandy last night and ate some pizza good pizza from a little shop down the way called old piper uh but yeah i mean that's pretty much the extent huh. Well, before I forget, happy Father's Day to you. Oh, yes. Happy Father's Day as well. And happy Father's Day to all those dads that are listening. Agreed. Agreed. What about you? What have you been up to lately? Um, just working. Uh, it's It's been a little bit of a pain in the ass because we're dependent on the railroad for part of my job. And we have a unit train that is due on Wednesday. Uh, so three days from now, basically. And that would be 78 tanker cars full of ethanol. We have 20 done. So we have 58 to do in three days because they did not drop any cars off to us until yesterday sometime. So I don't even know how many we have. Um, but it's going to be hot as fuck these next few days also. So it's going to be miserable. Um, 
And on top of that, I also I took a second job also. So I'm going to be starting at Home Depot uh, tomorrow after I get done with my normal job doing that part time. So are you going to do that like in every other week kind of thing like I'm doing or are you going to work? while you have your kids it'll be kind of similar to that yeah I, I told them you know i've we've got our kids for a week at a time so i you know the, the weeks where i have my kids i you know I, i'm probably not going to work as much during that time right and i mean i guess the the beautiful part was i i guess i don't know about your experience but in my experience with getting a second gig they were a lot more flexible than i remember um being but I'm assuming that's just because, like, I feel like everywhere is looking for workers. So I don't think that they... They seem... I mean, I haven't actually gone there in person yet, but, I mean, at least over the phone, you know, they they sounded pretty flexible. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. It'll be something different. Um, and I'm hoping that I'll get a discount on stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, for around... So that, that's kind of another benefit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... Love a good trip to Home Depot. Um, I guess the only other thing that like I would add to our, I guess, weekly shenanigans is we checked out like five houses Friday night and they're all just dives. Like some of them looked really nice, but I guess the hard part is, is with like the budget that I have, you either pick something that is like super far away or you find something that is spatially not going to function you know so it's it's either it looks nice there's probably not a lot that you need to like quote unquote fix but spatially it doesn't work for two adults three children and a ton of animals or uh, you find something that, yeah you may as well just keep right looking. yeah my gut's just telling me to to just you know what stay put because i've got a feeling that you know with an inflation as high as it is that people aren't going to be spending as much which hopefully that bleeds into the housing market a bit and kind of oh well these houses are now sitting kind of turns it from a seller's market more towards like a buyer's market. Like, hey, we need to lower our prices because we need to allure people to buy our houses. I saw something. I don't think it was from too long ago, but it was like some like news article or something, but it said that like in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area, I guess I don't know how big of an area, you know, into the burbs and stuff, but there was like, only 18 houses for sale that were $200,000 or less. Yeah, it's ridiculous, dude. And I'm pretty sure we've looked at all those 18. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, like, obviously we're in the Midwest and it, I feel like, you know, people on either coast of the country, you know, they're probably getting hit harder with things. Um, you know, obviously gas prices, but everything else too. I, I know uh, the guy who did our home loan. I'm friends with him on Facebook, and not too long ago, he he posted a link to a. I'll see if I can find it. I'll send it to you, and so you can show Danny, and she'll roll on the floor laughing. But a house for sale that was like, it was like a two bedroom, one bath, and it was like, like 730 square feet or something like that. Just 
and it was a shithole, and they wanted like a million and a quarter for what? it. What? Dead serious. Was that was that in the Midwest? You said, or was that? No, it was it was in California. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, gross. Like, get the fuck yeah. out! Like, that's that's a in a part right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's a shitty apartment. It's just you a know? giant no. bathroom to shit in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll see if I can find that again, and I'll send it to you because it was just like, you, what a joke! Right? Yeah, I'd like to so, see that. I, yeah, you know, I, I feel for everybody. You know, it's I, I feel like we're a little bit more insulated in the Midwest to, to that type of thing to some extent, but, you know, we're all feeling it. Yeah, yeah, but I guess speaking on more positive note. Um, Derek and I have been noticing a lot more listeners on our platforms and we just want to get, you know, give a big thank you to all uh, who have been following and who have been listening. Those who have been there from the start, those that are just joining, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sure. I mean, it's, you know, I kind of still feel like we're in our infancy here a little bit. Um, you know, we've been doing it for a few months, but, um, I like to think we keep getting better and I mean, we're still having fun. It's, it doesn't feel like work or anything still fun. So absolutely. Yes. It is. It is enjoyable to say the least. For sure. I guess with that, you want to, you want to roll into, uh, chapter 13 here of gardens of the moon. Sure thing. I will, uh, I'll start off with our. Our epitaph is that what is that what it was called again? Epigraph. Epigraph. Yeah. Thanks. I'm still an idiot. No, sometimes. no worries. Um, we did get some uh, a comment on Instagram about reading the epigraph after after you've read the chapter because apparently it makes more sense. And I don't know why I didn't think of that, but I'm gonna start doing that when I read these chapters. Did you want to hold off on to? Till the end no, we can read it now. I'm totally cool with that. I was just saying, like from a from like a reader's perspective, that was suggested as you're reading it to read it at the beginning, and then if you, when you're done with the chapter, go back and read it. Oh, gotcha. I guess this one, like thinking, you know, reading it and then thinking back on it, some of them definitely felt that way. But I guess I don't get that sense on this one. But maybe you will. Maybe you can point something out. Yeah. So here we go. Chapter 13, there's a spider here in this corner in that her three eyes tiptoe in darkness. Her eight legs track my spine. She mirrors and mocks my pacing. There's a spider here who knows all of me, her web, my history full writ. Somewhere in this strange place, a spider waits for my panicked flight. The conspiracy, blind gallon, 1078. So moving on into the first first section of chapter 13 here. And uh, I guess so far this is going better than uh, our recording episode 13 <laughs> since we had some difficulties there. Uh, two 13s back to back. Um, Kalam chugged his beer and went upstairs as the guild assassin left. He looked at the crowd, and no one paid him much mind. He entered the room where Quick Ben was and locked the door, sat down on the floor with him. 
He assembled his crossbow. Quick Ben had been meditating, it seemed. When Kalam had finished putting together his crossbow, Quick Ben came out of his trance and said that he was done and ready whenever he was. Kalam said the man left through the back kitchen, but he'd be back and that he was also ready. Quick Ben told him he had two spells. One would allow him to float and control the scent. The other allow him to see almost all magic. If there was a high mage, he's shit out of luck. Quick Ben says that he won't be able to see him directly, just his aura, but he'd be with him the whole time. I hope things go smoothly. Make contact with the guild. Offer the Empire's contract. Ideally, they accept and remove the major threats in the city. They both know that's not how it will work and that more or less they're walking into a trap. But once the guild knows what they want, they probably won't be interested in killing them. Kalam starts to float. Quick Ben says they're doing it all again. So was this not the first time they've overthrown a city? Um, but Hood is on their heels, and he can feel Hood's breath on his neck. Kalam feels it too and thinks the Empire wants them dead. They've seen too much, and if the Empire gets what it wants, maybe Jerusalem will let them slip away. But how could they convince Whiskey Jack to walk away from the Empire? They have to show him there's no other choice. Kalam says it's a good thing he isn't a claw anymore and just a soldier. Quick Ben touches his chest and disappears. They want out of the gangster life. No more assassinations or spying, daggers in the back. They spot Ralik Nam as he's heading towards the harbor front. They follow him until he leads them to a big two-story building by the harbor. Quick Ben asks Kalam if he smells something bad about the situation. Kalam says, nah, buddy, it smells like roses. And they take their position. That was a good way to put it. It smells like fucking roses. So what did you think of that? I was, um, one, uh, I was totally wrong about Quick Ben. He was definitely not outside, uh, clearly, by this section. Um, I know that's kind of a smaller thing. But two, uh, I really... I guess I never thought of the fact that like mages or high mages as quick men is could bestow magic onto non-magical beings. I don't know. Is, is that kind of where you were maybe thinking as well? Um, not really. I mean, I guess I, I mean, why couldn't you cast a spell on somebody that gives them, you know, it's, I assume it's for a, a shorter duration of time. It's not like he's got this power forever now, you know? Right, true. So I guess that, that didn't strike me as like odd or weird or anything, I guess. Fair enough. I guess I just, I can't recall. I know that like there are probably have been moments where um, as we've read, power or magic has been bestowed on to somebody, but I guess I feel like this is maybe our first instance where we're directly told as readers that this is a thing. I guess more or less what what I liked is that there's some, I guess, more being revealed about the sorcery and the magic, uh, I guess the world building around what you can and cannot do with magic. Yeah, all the capabilities and everything. Right, yeah. Uh, what about you? What, uh, what would you take away from this section? 
Just, uh, you know, the things that stuck out to me, you know, where Quick Ben says that they're doing this all again, you know, that, you know, how many, how many times have they, you know, seeded into a city like this and, um, you know, to, to overthrow the local rule. And, um, you know, the other interesting thing I thought was, you know, how, it, you know, they seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum from Whiskey Jack on this you know, they're going to convince him to walk away from it should they survive. You know, these guys already want to get out of Dodge. Right, yeah. This isn't the first time that we've heard them talk about, like, how they dream of being done with this and how great it would be to be out out of this life, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, It's. I mean, it's... Sounds like it's taking its toll on them. You know, they're getting tired of it. And I mean, I guess I'd be tired of, you know, doing this fighting and everything too, you know, getting hurt, maybe killed. Doesn't seem worth it. Yeah. And um, remind me when we get a little bit further into some of these sections, but I think that um, your, your comment about, not the first time that they've overthrown a city. Uh, I think we'll come back uh, later in this section um, and kind of tie these two pieces of information together, but I don't know if I want to spoil that right now. Okay. I will do my best to remember. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like as we roll through these sections, it's just so much beautiful and rich information that sometimes I forget to go back and talk about stuff that I wanted to talk about, but um, that's okay. I guess that's all good. Um, Yeah. The only other thing that, and this is small because I feel like we both kind of like suspected this, but I think this is when the first time that Kalam reveals that he was a former claw. So I'm curious as to maybe hopefully being able to learn more about maybe his ventures in the claw and how, how exactly was he able to get out of being the claw? And I think that this will maybe subtly tie back into the whole, the first time they've overthrown a city as well. Um, when we reveal that. Yeah, it could. We'll have to see. But it definitely, uh, you know, added, added that, that sense of wonderment to Relic, right? Because, I mean, Kalam looks like a claw. Even though he's not a claw, he's the perception of him is that he is a Malazan claw, which I think doesn't help him in the situation because we know from previous chapters that Ocelot thinks that the claws are were sent in to wage war against the guild. Right. The I think the last thing I would add would be just uh you know clearly that they've done these situations before and quick been asking if something smells bad about the situation, you know, does he actually know something or is it just kind of an intuition? Um you know, where Klom says, no, nah, it's, this is, it's all good. You know, is it just kind of another day or, you know, 
obviously we know what happens here shortly and we'll get to it, but you know, is there something that tipped off quick Ben or, you know, like I said, is it just an intuition type thing? I think that uh, you, you raise a good point. Um, you know, quick Ben seems to, and I don't know how much of this is just because of his, you know, his sorcery prowess, so to speak, but maybe he is getting some type of, of, of vibe there that Kalam is just, you know, you know, unable to detect, but I think for Kalam more so I can speak more confidently that like, this is just the standard procedure as far as like what you do when you get into a city that you're, you're, I don't know if their goal is to overtake it. I, I feel like their prior, like prerogative is a bit different than like Empress Lacine's, um, or even Lorne, but, um, I think that for Kalam, it's it's merely just like this is what we do. So he's just kind of like you know, let's just get on with the show. Yeah, I agree with you too on that. But yeah, just the fact that he even asks the question makes me wonder. You know. Yeah, like what 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 is he potentially seeing? And you know, maybe in in further next chapters, uh, he'll maybe talk about the events that happened and reflect and be like, oh, I should have listened, you know, that type of thing. Like hindsight is always 2020 kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. That was that was all I had to add on there. Cool. Um I guess just thinking about the way that this chapter opened was I guess suspenseful, but not really. Like Kalam gathering and putting together his crossbow, quick bend meditating, and then like, you know, I just got very like preparing vibes, you know, like gearing up like those scenes that you see in movies where they're they're gearing up to go face some type of something, you know. Yeah. So that was just kind of the visual I got. I feel you on that. Cool. Well. Uh, what do you say we move on to the next section? Take it away there, buddy. Sweet. Ralik Nam lay on the rooftop, looking over the edge to the warehouse's courtyard below. From below in the shadow came Ocelot's voice. He asks Ralik if the assassin has Ralik in his sights, and if he's moving. Ralik tells his commander that yes to the first part of that question, and no to the second part. He tells Ocelot that it was impossible for the assassin to follow him because Ralik was positive, positive that no one was and that it stinks of majory. Rhetorically, he tells Ocelot how much he loves majory. Annoyed at this, Ocelot berates Ralik and tells him that there are spotters and unless there was a very good wizard, they would have picked up on the magic. Concluding to tell Ralik that the assassin followed him solo, and that the assassin is simply better than Ralik. Ralik simply asks Ocelot, what now? Ocelot tells Ralik that the circle is closing in on the assassin, and that Ralik's work was done, because the assassin's war was going to end tonight, and then Ralik could go home. So yeah, it was it was uh, I feel like it was it didn't even this section didn't even take an entire page. I think my summary is about as long as the <laughs> the actual verbiage in the book. 
Well, sometimes there'll be shorter ones like that. I mean, after all the long ones I've done, I'll take it. Sometimes it's nice to have a little break. And that, and yeah. this one was pretty straightforward, too. I mean. Yeah. I, I guess the only couple of things that I picked out is that um, Ralik's intuition is spot on, which I know that he is skeptical about this uh, uh, claw slash guild war. So I'm wondering if maybe that is like feeds into it. Like Ralik seems to be kind of very like intuitive. Um, but because, you know, we know from the previous section that Quick Ben was the one that followed him and Kalam being gifted the ability to see magic was essentially watching Quick Ben follow Ralic. So I just kind of, I don't know why, I just got like the whole like following a laser pointer, you know, type of thing while they were <laughs> tracking Ralic. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's. I think that's a good way to put it. So, no, I'm just I guess of cats. Right, cats, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess you could name a cat Kalam. I mean, I see that working. There you go. Well, your next cat that'll be its name. I bet no. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, quick pen. So. No worries. No worries. Um, and then, uh, as far as Ocelot goes. Maybe he's kind of a dumbass, this. isn't he? I don't like him. I don't. I find myself not liking his character, and maybe it's because we don't have a sense of any type of character development from him, and maybe that's just his role in his book. But I can't help but feel he's kind of naive to things. Like he doesn't listen to his subordinates, right? Like. You would think that, I guess, and maybe most managers don't listen to what's happening on the floor, so to speak. <laughs> you know, like, Speaking no. Speaking the truth, I'm, man. I, I, it's just my experience, right? I'm sure not all bosses are like that, but I feel like they just don't, they don't see what happens on the floor. So they don't have a way of preparing for what that is. You know what I mean? So it just... It seems like at this point, Ralic is more intuitive than Ocelot. But it just kind of makes me wonder, like, how Ocelot got where he was with the guild, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I dislike him as much as you do, but I don't think... Uh, it's definitely a pretty weak character so far. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely throw him in that bin as well. But you know, I, I mean I guess in this in this world, in this book, you know, the sky's the limit and you know, maybe he may come out and surprise us in some way, shape, or form, but I'm not holding my breath on that. Yeah, I don't think it's likely. But yeah, I, I guess as far as like events <clears throat> events go, it, it tied really nicely into the into the last section um, as just kind of being like one of those things that this is what happens with these characters. We know they're following this character. And now we have, you know, Ralik and Ocelot discussing that event. So 
these two things flowed really nicely to, with each other. I loved I loved how fluid it was. Yeah, it was to have this go back to back. It was kind of nice. This whole chapter, I think, for the most part, felt that way. There's maybe one section or two, you know, where it wasn't, but for the most part, a lot of it was. Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, it, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. All of it was pretty fluid. But well, I guess did you I have anything else? I didn't. Nope. You? No, I don't. I don't think so. Cool. Well, do you want to fluid into the next section? Sure. A demon flew above the city. It could see magic like it saw heat. It was small but mighty, uh, and I think the book said it was about the size of a dog. So it was small but mighty, nearly as strong as the man who summoned it. Summoned it. It saw two auras: the wizard and the one who had received the spells. It could also see the people closing around these two, some given away by heat, others by magic. The demon was bored. It was only supposed to watch. It wanted to kill. Too bad it wasn't stronger so it could kill its master. Then it would have went on a killing spree. Suddenly it's kicked in the head and was fighting for its life. They fell from the sky and fought. The demon struggling to answer its attacker's attacks. They fell between 11 assassins closing in on the city below, but they were paid no mind. Uh, and that's something I didn't catch the first time, is that these assassins were like not on the buildings. These ones were in the air also. So if you didn't catch that, it took me twice to catch that. They fell between the 11 assassins closing in on the city below, but they were paid no mind. The demon broke free and got the hell out of there. Its attacker not pursuing it, but joining the other 11 they took aim with their crossbows from above. Yeah, dude, I, I would I would agree with you. I was the section threw me off the first time because I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Last we heard there was a circle of assassins like closing in on Nam and now they're suddenly in the air. But yeah, I it took me it took me a couple of times to went back and read like I think the last paragraph a couple of times because that is what essentially made me go, ah. Got it. And we'll talk about who these characters are later on in the chapter. Yeah, so, I, I mean, yeah, I don't want to talk about too much here. Um, you know, I'd probably save it for later. So I don't, I don't really have anything else to add on this. The you know, this only, part. yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, it was really, really short. I, I guess... My my comments for this section are centered around this demon, and I don't know if you picked it up. I'm sure you did, but this this has to be Baruch's demon that he summons to spy in the last chapter. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But also, like, think think about it. If I mean demon summoning, right? Like. I would imagine that this might be an attempt by, you know, majory of all skill levels, but is there like a warning label when summoning this demon? Like, careful, if you are not strong enough, this demon will break your bonds and fucking kill you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But 
I, I don't know. I just found that like intriguing and a little fucked up. Like this demon doesn't want to spy. He wants to kill. He's, you know, he's got bloodlust. But at the end of the day, he can't because of the strength of his summoner. I just thought that was cool. And again, kind of provides like a little bit more of the the edges of majory and kind of like the do's and don'ts. You know, right. like what can be done, what can't be done. So I'm really enjoying, you know, some of the things that are, are being revealed on kind of like the world building aspect of it. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff. But yeah, that was the only thing that I had with the section was just purely purely the, the demon itself. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have anything else to add, so uh I guess yeah, if you're maybe, ready to move on to Yeah, I could I could do that. I just had one more thought as I'm I'm thinking about this, but I know that Literally. in this section <laughs> yeah. I know that in this section uh when he was battling this I guess unknown assassin for now, um he quickly goes from like one being bored and two just wanting to kill but two fear like those are drastic things to feel in a very short period of time yeah it was a pretty quick 180 right you know maybe more than that it and i feel like it takes a lot for someone to 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 have that 180 so quickly i guess not a person but you know you would imagine you know your stereotypical demons right like I'm sure that it takes a lot to scare them. So to to have a demon who's not, I would imagine or assume, easily scared go from that level of confidence and bloodlust to fear. So that was just my thought as we were talking about it. I'm like, oh, that's interesting to think about. I don't really know where that could go, but that's got to be like kind of makes you maybe empathize with the demon a little bit is maybe where this could lead to why well, i guess i don't know i i didn't empathize with it but that's just me and and we can talk <laughs> about that later yeah oh sweet um so in this next section kalam lays prone on the rooftop watching relic lay on the rooftop below or in front of him wondering what to do next he wonders if they are waiting for him to initiate contact. Kalam has a bad feeling and then says to Quick Ben that they should leave. Quick Ben, in his disembodied voice, tells Kalam to wait. Suddenly, in front of Kalam, two brightly colored shapes. I imagine them as orbs uh, drop down to the rooftop that Ralik was occupying. Kalam feels the slightest of tremors on the rooftop through his hands. He rolls onto his back as a bolt whizzes past him. Standing 30 feet away from him was a cloaked figure. The figure races forward as another assailant drops behind him near the far edge of the roof. Kalam quickly drops over the edge and just hangs there with like one arm. Quick Ben hovers above him still unknown to these new assailants as they are unable to see through quick Ben's like deflection spell quick Ben was able to see the assailant approach the edge where Kalam had dropped from. He held his breath as the figure leaned forward, 
hanging from the edge of the roof, when the assailant's body came into view, Kalam, hanging on the edge with one hand, uses the other hand to grab the assailant's throat and pulls him over the edge. As he's doing this, Kalam's knee makes contact with the assailant's face. And then Kalam lets the body fall to the ground below. Kalam pulls himself up onto the roof and charges the second assailant on the roof. Startled by this, the second assassin like gestures and then just disappears. Kalam comes to a halt and crouches, wheeling wildly to detect any attack. Quick Ben whispers that he sees her. Kalam puts his back to the edge of the roof and tells Quick Ben that he doesn't. Quick Ben tells him to just simply wait. Kalam is anxious. His head snaps to every sound, his breath exhaling through his nose. With an explosion of sound and fire, the attacker immediately comes into view, flashing a dagger at Kalam's chest. The dagger struck true, piercing Kalam's ribs. As the dagger lands, Kalam is able to punch the woman assassin below the ribs, gasping for air. Uh, she kind of reels back. Ignoring the dagger, he punches the woman again and in the same spot, and with his other hand makes contact, contact with her face. Landing on the roof with a thump, the woman is still. Kalam takes a knee and puts a piece of cloth in the wound the dagger had caused. He curses Quick Ben, but there is no reply. He scans the lower rooftops and sees nothing but bodies here and there. The warehouse roof where the two assassins landed behind Relic was empty. Kalam collapses to both knees and recalls that when the woman attacked, he heard two booms very close together. Quick Ben had damaged the woman assassin, and Kalam wondered if there was a third assassin that damaged Quick Ben. Kalam scans the area around him. It's quite a bit of action there. Yeah, and fucking badass action, right? Like, I can just imagine everything that was happening, like, vividly. I don't know about you. Yeah, it's kind of, like, movie-like, for sure. Yeah. And the uh, bodies everywhere that he is seeing, like, you interpreted that as the guild assassins that were circling around him, right? Yes. Yeah. So, basically, these new assailants, which... Uh, I'll admit, was confusing. Like, this part was confusing at first because these new assailants aren't, they haven't been named yet at this point. So you've got these assailants, you've got Kalam, who's a, an assassin, and then you have the Assassin's Guild. So there's a lot of places for confusion. But simply just reading it a couple of times will, you know, make things click a little bit more yeah yeah and even just as as i continued to read the chapter and and get more info thinking back to it made sense also but you know after having that first read and then doing it a second time it made definitely made sense yeah like i think i think the the piece that was like most confusing to me as i was reading it was the in the previous section it made it sound like the one uh you know new assassin that angled above the circle of the assassins guild 
I thought, or I took it as that was the one that would land on the warehouse rooftop behind Relic. I'm not really quite sure why I associated it that way, but uh, it's possible that after the massacre of the Guild Assassins, two of them just went behind Valak. So I guess what I was confused about was maybe the order of events. And I thought that as the 12 were like descending from the sky, that one of them angled up to go behind Relic, but... I don't think that's the case anymore. That was just kind of my first, my first impression on my first read through. I guess I guess I don't remember that specifically, or or feeling that way. And I guess right at my confusion for this part, and I don't remember if it gets cleared up, but just you know what happened to Quick Ben, you know why did he? I mean, he, he kind of left Klam out to dry a little bit, or feels that way. Um, you know, he says he sees he sees this person, but Klam doesn't, and then you know, Klam gets stabbed. Yeah, yeah, no, it does, it does get. Unless you remember, you know, anything on that, and and like I said, maybe we'll get to it here, and I'm just not remembering that particular part. Yeah, it was in a section that I had to summarize, so. Um... Yeah, we'll we'll we could we'll we'll swing back to that. Okay. Yeah. So it it's coming then. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess I, I mean myself for for your section here, I didn't have any more comments. Yeah, it's just super action packed, and I, I don't know. I guess I just love the way that it was laid out. You know, I mean, and to think, you know, I guess to just put myself in, in Kalam and Quick Pen's shoes, right? Like they go from, you know, hunting to being hunted, right? Like they're just suddenly surprised by this attack and have to think quickly and, you know, try to get out of there. So uh, I can only imagine like what they're thinking, like, well, what the fuck is this? You know? And, and I'm assuming that they probably think that this is an attack by the assassins guild. Yeah. They're, you know, they're suddenly they're, I mean, well, I guess they, they kind of knew they were going to be outnumbered anyways, but um, yeah, you have this third entity now to kind of throwing everything to hell, screwing everything up. Right. So maybe this goes back to what you were talking about with like Quick Ben saying that something doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about that, but I think you're 100 percent right. Cool. Uh, I guess the only other the only other thing that I had uh, to this was um, regards to the deflection spell, and it said in this. I think it was specifically in the section where it was like, it's a type of spell that like is only high magic. And it makes me believe that this type of spell maybe takes some time or experience to master. I would imagine that like, you know, if it's only, if it's only able to be done by someone who has been doing this for a while i would imagine or maybe just extremely talented uh that was just my only other thought i thought that was cool yeah that's cool yeah it's it is neat that there's like well i suppose you know it kind of makes sense though too i mean if 
you know, if you're just starting out learning magic, like you're not going to be able to do the complex and hard stuff, you know, right away. It's going to take years to like learn and work your way up, you know, right. the ladder. Yeah. Like there's levels there. So I just, yeah, I'm just enjoying that. You know, we're getting a lot of what can and can't be done. Yeah, I agree. Well, cool. You want to move on to the, uh, the next section? Sure thing. Ralic took a crossbow bolt in the back. It knocked the air out of him, but his jazzerant armor saved his life. He heard footsteps behind him. From below, he heard Ocelot asking what happened. The footsteps behind him stopped. He heard the crossbow behind him getting ready to fire. Ocelot calls again from below. Ralic rolls to his back, picks up his crossbow, sits up and fires. Smokes this motherfucker and sends him back flying. But wait, there's more. Shamwow! A second attacker was there as well, behind the first. He takes a bolt off the chest, and it ricochets past his head. Uh, Ralic takes a crossbow bolt. Uh, ricochets off his armor and then past his head. He staggered back to his feet and got his knife out. The other assassin retreated. Ocelot says he saw his magic but maybe they can figure out who these people are now. Ralic says he doubts it as the body of the assassin he shot disappears. Like a badass, he pulls the bolt out of his back. They set the trap, but they ended up being trapped. He didn't think the man who followed him had anything to do with this, however. In the distance, they saw more fighting. High mage type shit. They were getting out of there. Ocelot's an idiot. That's all I can say. Like, can he not yeah. hear, like, what's going on up there? I mean, he's directly, from what I understand, he's he's literally directly below Ralic. Like, dude, like, this trap, like, just trapped us. Like, we need to get out. <laughs> right. And it just, I don't know, it currently, it kind of seems like a little bit of a pussy. Like, why doesn't he go up there and help him? You know? He's asking what's going on, not getting a response. I can only assume that he's hearing some type of, you know, uh, truffle uh, or shuffle, some some type of confrontation, right? And he just he just stands there, like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I guess I, you know, it'd be easy to be afraid in like a fight, but like if you're an assassin, like, you probably shouldn't be afraid of fighting because it's probably going to happen. Right, and he's a guild. He's a guild leader. So maybe this just goes back to our previous point about bosses not knowing what's on the floor. Yeah, he's maybe he's not the right guy for the job. Right. Yeah. Yes, you're following me. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of. I feel like it's. it's uh, I don't know. It's they're making it kind of obvious. I think that he's uh, inept. Yeah. I. I. I I don't know. I kind of hope that like he gets killed. I know that maybe maybe shitty of me to say, but I kind of hope he gets killed in future like not episodes but uh, chapters. I mean, I, I think it's likely. <laughs> so you're hoping for that too? I just it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, fair enough. I really enjoyed your uh, your. But wait, there's more. Sham! Wow. <laughs> Sometimes these things just pop into my head. 
no it was great it was great i was definitely not expecting that um and i chuckled while i was on mute but uh, yeah i thought that was fun oh good we gotta we gotta keep it light right 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 exactly because sometimes this shit can be heavy can be but yeah i i don't know i i just i go back to ralic's intuition like and we know as a reader uh, you know some of the things that have unfolded so far in this chapter that um he's definitely right like ralic has been right this whole time about the events that are are currently unfolding and even the prediction of those events because he yeah, kind of seems a bit is. insubordinate when he talks or has conversations with us a lot. Like, you want me to be the bait? Like, he was pretty pissed about that, you know? Well, and then I also mean, having yeah. to, yeah. As I wouldn't want to be the bait either, because, I mean, what happens to the bait most of the time? Right, exactly. And I guess in, in that moment when, you know, you're going through that part, like, I feel like that's essentially what you're taking out of it is is the reason why he's upset but i think now another layer is added in the fact that like he's right you know it's not just the fact that he's the bait it's the fact that like you're not listening you know right. ocelot you're not you're not listening like the, this 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 doesn't feel like that yeah i guess those are my only takeaways uh from that so um if you'd like we could definitely move on I'm ready for you. Sweet. Once Sari had marked Krupp and the coin bearer, she was able to locate them easily. She intended to follow the fat man once she had left Kalam and Quick Ben, but something had drawn her to the coin bearer instead. She knew the boy would have to die because he was most vital to Opon's game and the last of Opon's influence. Something in her was fighting that conclusion, and it was a part of her that she did not recognize. Sari contemplates this thought, wondering what the coin touched inside her head, a voice of power and determination. This had only happened once before, when Whiskey Jack had said the word seer to her. She was unable to recall any dealings with seers and snapped back into reality. What she observed seemed to be just a simple theft. Crocus had stood in an alleyway studying a window, waiting for the light to go out. Sari compliments Crocus's grace and skill as he climbed to the window. Seeking another vantage point, she enters the estate's garden, killing the lone guard that patrolled there. A half an hour later, she waited, all the while wondering what he was doing in there. Alarms weren't going off or anything like that. Suddenly, she stiffened and felt a surge of sorcery from the other side of Jerujasan. It's sorcery familiar to her. She stands there debating what she should focus her attention on when she saw something behind the balcony sliding glass doors that ended her indecision. I feel like Sari, and I, I don't know if this is because of maybe some of the moments that are maybe triggering something else inside of her mind. But I feel like holes are being poked a little bit into maybe Cotillion's control is kind of maybe what this is insinuating, but I guess I don't really, I don't really know what to think of it, but I guess I had to, I had to go back 
like two chapters uh specifically to the to the part where crocus meets sorry for the first time and kind of like observes the blood on her clothes um but when at the bar when the coin spins out of control it is said that as that's happening a surging power enters her head but and at that point in time was never really elaborated on but i'm wondering now if this is opon's influence potentially keeping shadow throne at bay or poking holes inside of her said inside of her head and either and either like who she truly is is kind of like peering through those holes or is riga using these windows to poke through and fight with shadow throne for mind control i'm just kind of curious as to what's in store and it it's got me kind of on edge because riga is the hill i'm dying on <laughs> yeah I, I don't really know what to think of it either um I, I do think I agree with you. It does seem like it would be a, a good way for open to influence, you know, and, and maybe just buy a few minutes, you know, with some indecision and that type of thing, you know, inserting a little bit of doubt or something. Right. Cause yeah. And, and I know that um, while she's kind of like before she's in her head, she is kind of thinking about, what is most vital to Opon's game. And I know that like inside of her head, she kind of rambles on about the many players of Opon's game that she took out. One of them being Paran, which we know isn't dead, but I think that this confirms what I thought a couple of episodes or many episodes ago, and that Opon has more than one player, but it also makes me think about how does Shadow Throne know distinctively who Opon's players are or not? That, she, you know, not that she wouldn't mind killing regardless, but it just kind of like, I don't think it's been specifically said as to how Shadow Throne knows who maybe has touched or who Opon has touched to be part of their game. Like, I know that there was a a general in Pale, or a claw general in Pale that she had garroted, is what she specifically thought about, um, as well as the attempt on Paran's life, which, in fairness, she was successful. Opan just intervened. But I don't think she knows that yet. Right. But I guess it just got me curious, and, and I, I can't recall a situation where that has been revealed yet as to how shadow throne knows who who these influencers are if if it's just like a coincidence or it's happenstance i guess i don't know which side i fall on that yeah i'm not sure either i feel like it's like wine tasting you know like you've got the wine in your mouth you're swishing it around but then you just spit it out like you don't actually like swallow <laughs> it, you know. Like there's, 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 you're tasting it, but you're not digesting it. Is I guess maybe where I'm going with that. I get you. It's an interesting way to put it, but it makes sense. Yeah. So I guess I guess I'm I'm just curious as to see what where that leads to and um, where 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 it can go and 
how that maybe is building tension at this point not necessarily for us as the readers but just as for the characters involved like i feel like sorry is maybe having you know an existential crisis of some kind um maybe that's the wrong terminology for it but you know just a little bit of, of like like schizophrenia um yeah she does seem to you know she mentioned you know like when whiskey jack said the word seer but there do we do have these few moments where she gets kind of like panicked and and not herself so it will be interesting to see where that goes yeah i definitely think like i i feel like i can confidently say that there's definitely something going on inside of her head between two sources or potentially three but that's that's just me at this moment guessing and speculating i don't just gonna have to wait and find out that's all we can do right read slash wait and find out yep but yeah i guess that's i know uh, yeah outside of you know just sorry's thoughts and observing crocus enter uh, what I would assume is the DRL estate. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I had on those sections. All right. Well, we ready to move on? I would say so, yeah. All right. Crocus kept wiping sweat from his eyes. He had made it past all the booby traps to get inside. He still thought he was an idiot and didn't know what he was doing. He could hear her breathing behind him, and it made him nervous. He began putting things back. Suddenly she spoke and said if he's returning things, she wants them put in their proper places and directs him where they go. Shit, he forgot to cover his face. He said he returned everything and he was going to leave. She's not impressed and says she only needs to scream and the Master Guardsman will be there in seconds. Would he cross his dagger with his short sword? Sounds like a lame dick measuring contest to me. Crocus says no, he'd take her hostage. She tells him he'd lose his hand for thieving, but his life for kidnap of a highborn. She tells him to stay where he is. She's lighting a lantern to see him better. Crocus asks what the point is. Just call the guard, have him arrested already. He wants to know what she wants with him. She wants to know why a thief who successfully stole from her would return what he took. Seems like bad business practice for a thief. He says he wanted to see her better, and he was sorry for scaring her. She asks why. Crocus asks for her name. She says it's Chalice de Arl, and he rolls his eye as he hears her name. Of course she would have a name like that. But he's not going to give his name because thieves don't introduce themselves to their victims. Chalice says she's not a victim anymore since he returned everything, so he's pretty much obliged to give his name now. He relents, says his name is Crocus Younghand, and all her suitors are lining up to see her, but one day he'll be one of them, and she'll know where she saw him last. But the next time it would be a proper introduction, and he would have a gift, as is custom. He looked at her horrified at his word vomit. She looked back and laughed in his face, and then quickly covered her mouth to stifle the sound, and says he needs to get the fuck out. He felt dead inside, but a small part of him still held hope. He looked back and saw her blanket had fallen, and 
he glimpsed her naked body. She didn't seem to notice. Instead, channeling her inner Gandalf, she says, Hurry! Fly, you fool! He had to move fast to get clear. He got outside, and the woman from the bar was there. So, our theory is correct, right? He has been smitten by this chalice. This D.R.L. girl. He has been, yes. I don't know. Like a little lovesick puppy. Right, right. I thought that this was this this, this section was cute. I I liked. I enjoyed this this section. Yeah, when, there's some good banter between them. And I, I really I know. Would. I didn't. You know, there's. You know, we're just doing like kind of brief summaries. I mean, we're not recanting the book word for word here. So obviously, some stuff got left out. But um, yeah, just you know, I I really liked when he rolled his eyes at hearing her name and was like, of of course that would be your name. Right. And I, I was really like, you know, I mean, I guess it uh, maybe didn't have too many expectations on on what this this woman would end up being, but or this young lady would end up being. But I, I was really impressed with her. I'm not a victim anymore because you're returning my stuff. Like, I thought that was super witty and clever for her to say, uh, you know, in a situation like that, you know just putting myself maybe in this, you know, young maiden's position, like, oh, there's this dude that's putting shit back. Hey, make sure you put it back where I want it, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, uh, sure. Like, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, what did you just say? Right, like, it was cute but awkward. You know, like I felt awkward when I read it and I, I, I'm, I would assume that that was probably the goal of the author was to maybe make that a little awkward, but you know, not at like, I didn't yeah. get the feeling of intrusion, which this is exactly what's happening. Like he's, I know that he had a big, big crisis, mental crisis around taking away her privacy but yet he's willing to do that to make it right. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, I mean, I know you and I had talked on the last episode, you know, was this going to go poorly or was it going to go well? And I don't really think we got a clear answer on that. Like, obviously it didn't go terrible, but it all, you know, it also didn't go great. You know, they're not like <laughs> engaged, you know, like getting married next week or anything. Right, that would be the great part of it. But at the end of the day, like you were saying, it didn't go terrible either because she like realizes that when she giggles that somebody would have heard it and w- would be coming in to investigate and all, you know, gives him a forewarning. Like he even like or she even tells him to like, you know, hey, watch out for the tripwires which, yep. you know, he had already encountered, but I think that you maybe get hurry when you're trying to escape. It's you, you. You're probably not thinking about that type of thing. Yeah, you read my mind. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to. So, yeah, I. It was just. It was cute. It was cute. Um, so, I, I liked reading that section. And then, yeah, you know, definitely some panic at the end. You know, especially when, you know, we see, sorry at the end. He doesn't know who it is. He just knows he's seen her before. And, you know. 
well, what the hell is this lady doing here now? Uh, right. Yeah. Like, like creeper, creepy as fuck. Right. Like you go in doing this one thing, they, you know, she wasn't there when you entered. And then when you get out and you're in a hurry, you're already in a, like a panic mode. And then you see this woman from the bar that had blood all over her because clearly she killed shirt. Right. He knows this. And, He's made that association. Yeah. And now this oh, other guard outside is dead now too. Right. Just willy nilly. Like, Oh, I killed another guard. Woo-hoo. Yeah. I didn't really have any more comments for this section. Yeah. Um, pretty straightforward. Yeah. We'll have to see how things pay out here. I guess we'll have to wait a little bit longer. We started to get a, a resolution, but I hope I hope we see the final play out. Yeah, yeah. I hope that she comes back and we maybe get more uh, interactions with with Crocus and Chalice because I, I'm I'm I guess I I'm wanting more from from that interaction or more of those interactions. I'm sure I I think we will. I. You know, there's been some investment into it, so I don't think it's just going to drop off. You know, like there's, we're going to have to see something play out of it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. But yeah, if you're ready, I can move on to this uh, next section here, section eight. Yeah, take it away, buddy. Kalam crouched on the rooftop. He held two knives in his hands. The night was still, but heavy. He listened intently to his surroundings, fighting thoughts that he was alone. Suddenly, out of the air, two shapes appeared, hovering over the rooftops. It seems the assassin had found Quick Ben, and he shoots a bolt of fire. This stuns Quick Ben, and the assassin rushes in for the attack. Seeing this, Kalam takes steps to intercede when Quick Ben vanishes and then appears behind the assassin sprouting blue flames from his hands he lights the assassins back on fire quick ben turns to Klam and urgently tells him to get going the bolt they they bolt for the roof's edge Klam turns to look back he sees the that the assassin has snuffed out the flames as two of his comrades land behind him quick ben yells for Klam to jump and then says that he'll stall them Kalam asks with what. Quick Ben pulls a vial and throws it. Kalam curses and then jumps down. The vial hit the rooftop, stopping the three approaching assassins. From the billowing smoke rose a figure, growing larger. The figure spoke and said that Quick Ben was not Master Tashren. Quick Ben admits that he is not Tashren, but makes the point that he is that of the Empire and points to the three assassins and tells the demon that they are Tisti Andi and that they are enemies of the Empire. The demon then introduces himself as Pearl. Pearl, noticing that the three assassins have not run, have not run calls out to Quick Ben that they must have accepted his challenge and then asks Quick Ben if he should pity them. Quick Ben tells him to kill them and be done with it. Pearl asks Quick if he is to return to Tashran when he is done. To this, Quick Ben tells him yes. But Pearl has one more question, 
and that is of Quick Ben's name. Quick tells him his name, Ben Adephan Delat. Pearl responds by saying that he is dead, and his name is on the list of high mages who died in the Seven Cities. Glancing up, Quick Ben sees more assailants approaching and tells Pearl this observation. Five assailants were descending in the first wave, and the second was a lone figure animating a power that chilled Quick Ben's blood. This figure had something long strapped to its back. Pearl observes this figure as well and questions Quick Ben if he sent Pearl to his death. Quick Ben simply just says, I know. Pearl tells Quick to leave, but before Quick Ben jumps down, Pearl asks if Quick Ben pities him. Quick Ben says yes, and then drops down to the street below. Whoa, like fucked up, dude. More action. More action, indeed. And I'm sure that like everything, you know, was meant to be kind of like a like a quick pace. But I I had a hard time with the whole like questioning thing. Like there are assailants approaching and they're just having a conversation at the edge of a rooftop. (laughs) Just go kill these guys. Like that's all I need you to do. Right. Like what's with all the fucking questions, you know? But, you know, uh, Pearl, you know, is a Korvala demon. And I feel like that was that was the demon that was brought during the assault on Pale. Regardless, though, we know that this vial was taken from Teishran. So is this the same demon that ripped Nightchill to smithereens? I guess I did not think about that, but it certainly could be. I mean... Right, right. Like it's totally possible that within this 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 world, right, that Tashran, a high mage of the Empire, probably has more than one vial of demons. But is this how? Because I feel like the way that the the demon approaches is no, no. Because in the city of Pale, it it comes from underneath the ground and rips that other high mage that I've totally forgotten his name now and Nightchill. Um, um, I can't remember right now either. Yeah, it's all good. I feel like it starts with a T, like Torvala or something. I could be wrong. I probably am wrong. But yeah, I guess that's just like that was my first. That was my first instance. Is like, is Pearl the demon that ripped? Like that was my first thought. Is this the demon that you know essentially helped sabotage the strike on Moonspawn? Sorry, did you feel like it was or was not? I spaced out hard there. Oh no, you're fine. No, I, I feel like it. I feel like Pearl is the demon that uh, was used at Pale, only because like that's, you know, it's Tayshren's demon or vial essentially. So, I feel like that. I, that it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, un- yeah. unless it's you know like a like a magazine clip of some kind, you know, like these high high mages are carrying around multiple vials, but I would feel that like capturing demons is probably not the most easiest thing to do. Yeah. It's probably not like catching a Pokemon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always go. And whenever I, when I read this, I think of like 
Ocarina of Time where you have to like capture the ghosts in a bottle uh, and give them to somebody. I don't remember the game that well, but that's just what I go to because I remember I remember that part where you had to like run around and capture ghosts in your little bottle. I don't think I ever played that one. You never played Ocarina of Time? Nope. Not even like Majora's Mask? Because they do that in nope. there too. Oh, those are such good games, dude. They have them. You can get them on the, I think it's a Nintendo DS, 3DS, or maybe even the Switch now. I guess I haven't been paying attention. Hmm. I, I do not have a Switch. Uh, Bellardan, that was the name. Yeah, but he didn't die. He's still alive. Well, the other one, the other one was uh, a Coronis or whatever. There it is, a Coronis. That's what it is. You're right. It popped into my head there. Love it. Yeah, he was he was very short lived. Yeah. Um, but what did you think about the uh, Pearl telling him that Quick Ben should be dead, as he was on the list of high mages who died in the Seven Cities? Um. I don't really remember having any strong feelings on that part. And I guess I don't know why. Um, the one thing that bugged me on this was like the first time I read it, I was wondering, well, who the hell is this one person where I feel like it should have been pretty obvious that it was an Amanda Rake, uh, you know, with a, it was his seven foot long sword or whatever strapped to his back. Um, yeah. And I just did not pick up on it the first time. And that's, that was the thing I was telling you about, like towards the beginning of the the show when we first started talking. Um, yeah, just for whatever reason that it did not connect in my head. Yeah. But how did yeah. you feel about uh, Ben supposed supposed to be dead? Well, so I think this goes back to when we were talking in the first section about they've done this before. Remember. So the Seven Cities, um, I know that we haven't had any experiences in the Seven Cities, but I know that it's been mentioned quite a bit. And this is where kind of like I'm wondering, you know, when did what was Seven Cities conquered? I'm assuming so by the Malazana Empire. Because, again, going back to the whole procedural conversation with Kalam, like clearly he's done this before and clearly in the seven cities but as well as quick ben and i i guess what i'm curious about is like it was this planned to happen uh is this potentially like a way for quick ben's way out of the malazan empire did it allow him to go back into the malazan malazan empire under a new guise to right maybe some wrongs so I, I guess there's just so many ways that this could go, but it, I mean, clearly he's not dead, but as far as like the seven cities is, is concerned, he's on a list of the high mages who died. So I think this is why he no longer goes by Delot, Ben Delot. He goes by quick Ben is because there's so many things that involve around him, right? Like we know that he is a former shadow throne, I think priest of some kind, I think is what, what we talked about in the last episode. He is supposed to be 
dead, according to the Malazan Empire. He's under a new guise or like a new identity, but he has joined the bridge burners who we know Empress Lucine wants to eliminate because of their ties to a uh, an emperor that was assassinated that didn't command fear but commanded loyalty. So yeah, I, I it just it got me down this rabbit hole of thoughts. Um, which is what I was talking about in the first section when it came to, yes, they've clearly done this before because I would assume that Kalam and Ben Adefan Dalat also would infiltrate the seven cities to attempt to offer these contracts to the Guild of Assassins that were there. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? I think so, yeah. I'm following you. I guess that's just where my mind is going. Whether I'm right or wrong, I, I, I don't care at this point. I just, I like, I like to speculate. But I'm also really curious as to see, see where everything, where everything goes. Yeah, as am I. I what feel you- like it's been a good, like, you know, you, you get a, a, a chapter or two of these characters and then, you know, you switch over to these other characters. So I feel like it's been a pretty good balance because by about the time, like, okay, what are these other guys doing? You know, I feel like we've been getting to them. Right. Yeah. Speaking of, um, on that note, um, I, it's been a minute since we've had any type of Gano's conversation. Like, I feel like it's, it's true. been a good three or four chapters since we've talked about him and his journey. Yeah. Yeah, when they were traveling to Jerugistan and and ran into the Tattersail and and Bellardan stump. So hopefully we'll get back to him here pretty quick. Yeah, I'm curious just to see where him and Talk the Younger are. But what um, they've been up to? Right, yeah, and their journey. But um I guess the only other thing that I had was I, you know, I kind of feel bad for Pearl. You know, with the whole Pearl asks, like, clearly, you know, Pearl is acknowledging that, you know, you sent me to my death with this approaching figure, which we've identified as an Amanda Rake. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess I just kind of I ended up feeling bad and a little sad for him. Why is that? I feel I, I don't I can't quite put my tongue in, or my finger on it. But I feel like the author could have not given us the demon's name so i feel like him or her being introduced as pearl kind of gives that like first name basis type of relationship with the reader and then just very quickly demised you know like in the interaction with pearl and quick ben it's not like she or he was an asshole Seemed no. like a nice demon. <laughs> as weird as that is to say, but right, yeah, you know, like he's just there to do his bidding. Obviously, very loyal to Tayshren. So it just it kind of makes me, you know, it just gives this like human factor to this this demon that we don't know anything about, which I thought was cool because. You know, it's not very often you can you can do that, but still kind of feel 
some type of emotion for what we know is the you know the death of this demon right but yeah that's just kind of where i was going with it but uh but yeah those are the only things that i have that gives a little bit of humanity i suppose yeah so and i don't know if you caught this but a uh an alien reference maybe not a reference but a similarity in one of these next sections uh, I guess we'll have to see if I remember when we get there. Yeah. You want to take it away to the next section? Sure. All right. Relic walked down the middle of the street. The Hyathalanti Temple was one of the oldest structures in the city, over 2,000 years old. Somewhere below was Vorkin, Master of Assassins. He imagined Ocelot de- delivering the bad news. He knew one day he would be clan leader and meet Vorkin face-to-face. It wasn't a pleasant thought. He could have made other choices in life, but eventually he'd swear to the guild master, and that would be that. As he approached an inn, he saw Crocus down the street. He called out to him. When he caught up to him, he sternly tells him that this isn't a game and to stay off the rooftops. The guild's best were slaughtered last night. Tell your uncle Mammoth that there's a claw in the city also, and someone else too killing everything in sight. Ralik tells him man-to-man that if he stays on his current path, he'll end up dead. It isn't exciting, so knock it off, and tells him to leave. Marilio appears and says it was a good effort, but he doesn't think it will work. Master Baruch has a job for them, and Krupp says to bring Crocus. They're leaving Daruzistan. Ralik says to leave without him. Tell Baruch he couldn't be found. Everything is in a crucial juncture right now. They walk towards the Phoenix Inn, and Ralik tells Marilio it's been a night that would make Hood smile. Uh, how did you interpret that, uh, a night that would make Hood smile? Like, what were your thoughts around that? Um, you, I think Hood, Hood must be like the god of death. So, I mean, there was a lot of death. Right. I don't know. I just thought that was... That was, that was kind of what I thought. Yeah. I just thought that was a beautiful way to say that he was happy. I, I didn't really have more than that, but I just thought it was a clever way of saying, you know, there could have been so many ways to describe, you know, tell us the reader that Hood was was happy. Ooh, I got some new souls, you know. <laughs> yeah, this one, I, I, I think this section I had kind of a hard time summarizing just because there was, you know, I, I was able to keep this one kind of short, but I felt like it was a little bit longer, but there was just... Some stuff that I, you know, Alex kind of having some internal monologue and stuff, but um, I don't know. You know, this, I, I don't really know what to make of this one, what to think of it, you know, other than, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want to see Crocus going down the same path that he's going down just to have him end up getting killed. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's probably the, the most take i mean the biggest takeaway is just this and you know the conversation with marilio um which i'm assuming you know relic is telling marilio all of the events of what transpired uh while they're having a drink at the phoenix inn but i think i think the only thing that i i could really add to this is you know like like you mentioned you know he's having an internal monologue and i feel like we're getting a lot of this from these characters lately which before you don't 
you kind of just get like what their actions are and kind of like the conversations they have between different characters in 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 this book but now we're starting to kind of dive into like how is it that they're thinking and how they are feeling and I think that like it just goes back to some things that we've already alluded to with Ralic and that he's he's kind of frustrated, I think. Like I got a big feel of frustration with Ocelot um because of some of the things that you know we previously talked about. Like I think that he is feels that he could do a better job than Ocelot can. And one day when he meets Vorkan, he will prove that to her. I kind of get the like image in my head of Red Foreman calling uh, what's his name Eric, a dumbass. <laughs> like that's that's kind of what I think. Uh, Ralik thinks of Ocelot, just dumbass. I'm unfamiliar with that reference. What is Redman calling Eric an idiot from? Oh, that 70s show? Red Foreman. Oh, Red Foreman. I think that was his name. Got it. Okay, I never watched that 70s show. Oh, well, then it, then it, that reference won't make a lot of sense then. No, but I, I can, I'm assuming that this is a employer slash employee relationship. Uh, no, it's a father and son. Oh, never mind. Okay, well, I mean, kind of the same <laughs> thing, maybe. <laughs> I don't really yeah. get the sense of, you know, father figure from Ocelot, but I do get the idiot sense. No. Right. So I think that just, you know, and I know that like this, this section started off with, you know, explaining that, uh, you know, morning is essentially coming. And so like the gas lights that were a lit, like lit by the gray men, the gray men were going around and like extinguishing them. But I also remember from the section that before he kind of has his internal monologue, they do talk about the gas chambers underneath the city um, because of some, because, you know, the, the rumor of Jerugistan, right? Like so many people had come to Jerugistan to essentially, you know, search for this Jag Hut tyrant, but the reason why the gas chambers exist is because they had poked so many holes into the earth and inadvertently discovered the gas underneath the city. So like that was cool to kind of get like a little bit of a, a history lesson, so to speak, as far as the blue flame that you find at night in Jerugistan. Right. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with moving on if you are. Yeah, I don't have any more insight or uh, deep thoughts here. So, yeah, take it away again. In the center of the rooftop lay a large patch of ash and bone. Anamander Rake asks what has happened to the figure next to him. The Tisti Andi he addressed was named Surat. Anamander is baffled as he had sent 12 assassins but only sees eight. Surat was clearly exhausted as she explains that Jakarl has a broken neck and three cracked ribs and Barul's face is a mess. I'm assuming that these are the two that Kalam took out. Rake asks who they had been fighting and if the guild master had come out of hiding. Surat, Rake's lieutenant, explains that they fell to one but, of, but not of the guild. 
Furious Rake says one word, and that word is claw. Sarah, Sarat responds that it's possible, but based on the high mage who was accompanying him and had unleashed the Karvala demon for them to play with, Rake makes the statement that it had the smell of the Empire to it. Following that up by speculating that it was one of Tayshren's conjurings, Sarat explains to Rake that Dash Dashtail was struck by a poisoned arrow, and that was for sure one of the guilds. She begins to explain that they are all tired and that mistakes were definitely made, as not all the guild was taken out. She thanks Rake for answering her call, because if he hadn't come, then likely more casualties would have been lost in fighting the demon. Rake pauses for a moment. He then tells Surat that the guildmaster must be flushed out and the guild shut down. Rake wonders if the claw that she encountered was trying to establish some type of meeting with the guild. Sarah says that no, it was a trap. Rake then announces to all on the roof that they have done a good job and that they are all to return to Moonspawn and rest for three days and three nights. Surat says that they will use that time to mourn. Rake questions this, to which Surat explains that Dashtail was killed by the poison arrow. Rake was then informed that the poison was made by an alchemist of some ability, as it contained Peralt. Rake acknowledges this with a single phrase. Surat asks if Rake will be joining them. Rake responds that he will not. Surat bows and the assassin Tistiandi on the rooftop disappear. Rake looks at the pile of ash and bone as it has melted the top of the roof and fell into the house below. This is where I was talking about the alien reference. Kind of like uh, the acid blood melting through floors and stuff. Yep. I mean, as soon as I read that, that is exactly what I went to. So I was just like, I wrote in our comments, and I don't know if you can see this. I was just like, ah. Our first alien similarity. Totally thought of the yeah. acid blood of this. So I don't think I would have thought of that unless you said something, to be oh. honest. Come on, man. Oh, well. But yeah, it, it's just so I guess that, you know, clearly the ash and bone and the large patch on the roof are, are the remains of the Karvala demon. So is it the way he's destroyed that is causing the roof to melt? Or is, does he have acid blood? Hmm. Yes, I'm not sure. Gotcha. No worries. So the only like big thing that I had in here, and you'll have to bear with me, is, is me trying to attempt, not necessarily the order of events, but that's kind of how I was able to make sense in my mind, but Surratt tells Rake that it wasn't a meeting, but rather a trap, but it definitely appears that it would be a trap, but something tells me that what it appears to be with Ralic being the bait, but the only thing we know is that Ocelot believes that there is an assassin's war, which is fair because assassins have died on the rooftops before, right? With Tallow. As we read earlier in the book with Tallow. So if I'm deducing this correctly, it should be kind of the following, right? So Shadow One, Shadow Throne started killing at least one assassin on the rooftops that we know of. 
And I feel like a couple of more were mentioned, like in those conversations of like who died. The guild or Vorkin believes that there are Malazan claws in the city, thus killing her assassins. Ralic is skeptical about this and doesn't believe that that's the case. Three, Kalam and Quickben are there to seek out the Assassin's Guild to offer them a contract to kill Jerujistan's people of power to hopefully flush out those in charge. Four, the Assassin's Guild sets up a trap as they have identified Kalam as someone seeking them. Five, the Tistiande intervene to prevent Kalam slash the Malzahn Empire from giving this contract to the guild as that is the Malazan's go-to move. So I feel like all of this is just one big clusterfuck of misunderstanding. If that makes sense. Yeah, but I, I think you're on the right track and I think we get a little bit of confirmation here on, on this too, even here in I think my last section. Got it. Cool. Well, we could maybe swing back when we go through your last section here. But yeah, I just, there's a lot of information here and a lot of things that have been set up that I feel kind of get explained as to where this is potentially heading. But, you know, in the moment when you're reading those chapters, you're like, well, why are the fucking killing assassins on the roof? You know, but I feel like that is is just the setup that, you know, kind of makes all of this make so much more sense. And you get that like that justification, not justification, but you get that that gratification that, you know, you're still following. Right. Yeah, I I mean, your your order events there, I mean, just from, you know, reading this chapter, I think that makes sense. Sweet. Okay. I'm not crazy, then. I love it. I mean, you still could be, but I mean, I'm not here to judge. Um, yeah, cool. I mean, that, that was really the only big like takeaway that I had from that outside of like, from what I understand, Anamander Rake pretty much took down this demon by himself in minutes. Less than. Less than. Yeah. But uh i'm i'm ready to move on if you are all right whiskey jack rocked in a chair in a room that smelt like a mankato bar bathroom which is to say it smelled like piss round table fiddler hedge and mallet played cards uh actually i don't think they played cards they were playing a game that fiddler made up Anyways, they had just finished their work that evening outside Majesty Hall. Whiskey Jack studied the three at the table. None of them had moved or said a word in minutes. Fiddler invented new games all the time. Whiskey Jack said that's what boredom can do. But it's hard to wait when you didn't know if your friends were dead or alive. The door to the room burst open and Trots came in. Whiskey Jack grabbed his sword and mostly closed the door, just left a little bit of a crack there. The others kept their game going. Whiskey Jack looked out the crack in the door and he could see two figures, one leaning heavily on the other. He called for Mallet. Malik asked which. Whiskey Jack said Kalam. 
Quickben and Klum entered the room and closed the door behind them. Klum is pale and his shirt is soaked with blood. They move him to a bed and Quickben asks what kind of game they're playing. Whiskey Jack doesn't know. They just sit there and stare. Mallet says Klum will be out a while. It's a clean wound, but he's lost a lot of blood. Whiskey Jack wants to know who the f- or what the fuck happened. Quickben says they had a mage duel that didn't go well, and they had to let an empire demon loose to get out alive. Whiskey Jack was pretty surprised by this and said it's loose in the city. Quickben said, nah, it's dead now. Whiskey Jack wants to know who they ran into. But uh, they're not sure. But whoever it was killed the demon in under a minute. They were able to hear its death cry when they were a block away. They deduce it's Tisty Andy if it came from the sky, so Moonspawn is active, and the Lord is one step ahead of them. He figured they'd try to contact the guild, so he tried to take the guild out first. They wonder if the guildmaster is good enough to take on the Tisty Andy, and probably not. Oh, also they ran into Sorry. Whiskey Jack says he sent her after some fat man she thought was important. How'd she run into you two? So Sari had told the truth. They did not know how she found them, but she had found who they were looking for and gave them to, gave him to them. Kalam now only had a pink scar where his wound was. Whiskey Jack wished they knew who was running the city. Kalam says if they start taking out council members, maybe they can flush out the real rulers. Whiskey Jack says that's a good idea, but the Lord of Moonspawn knows they are here now, so they'll have to work fast. Fiddler says they could blow up Majesty's Hall. Whiskey Jack says they have enough ammo for that. Well, if they pulled some mines out of the street. Whiskey Jack says this is getting absurd. They're going to leave things as they are. He noticed the non-existent card game involved no movement. There was a standoff then. Were they telling him something? I think that's pretty ominous, don't you? If, if they're trying to tell him something uh, as far as the standoff is concerned. I feel like there's a lot in that sentence. Yeah, I, I feel like they probably are trying to tell him something because I don't think you would include a line like that if there wasn't some sort of like substance behind it, you know? Right. And I think the key word there, though, is standoff. So, and I'm wondering if, if again, that is some type of foreshadowing of some kind between these, you know, what I would imagine as these, you know, two potential forces, you know, being Shadow Throne and uh, the Bridge Burners, or even Malazan. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's maybe, you know, you're talking about foreshadowing, maybe foreshadowing some i don't know if division is the right word but maybe some disagreement you know where maybe whiskey jack has to make a call that the rest don't agree with i suppose yeah i guess i yeah i didn't think of that that could totally be the case i guess just what decision is is kind of the the question now right yeah but i don't know i guess I don't, the only thing that I really truly remember from this uh, section, and not even truly remember, but remember feeling in the moment is that, again, Whiskey Jack 
I feel has kind of some internal questions for himself. I know that there was a a lot of him thinking about his youth and like some of the decisions that he's made. So I don't know if this is maybe alluding to Whiskey Jack potentially being able to be swayed from the, you know, like being able to be like talked into leaving the Malazan Empire, like Kalam and Quick Ben want to do, is I guess just what I remember feeling the most about this section. But it also just kind of feels like filler, you know, like it, not filler in the sense that like it's just a filler section, but filler as in like it's kind of filling in some of the gaps of information that we've gotten so far as far as the previous sections. And I know that we've kind of discussed those gaps as we were going through those sections. So I think this is more just kind of confirming that for us. I don't know, how do you feel? Yeah, yeah, I I feel the same way. And this was another one that was kind of hard to wrap up, you know, summarize up what to include and what to leave out. Um, But yeah, I totally, get the the filler vibe from it you know like you were saying and and not in the sense that it's just you know to eat up pages but right yeah just to answer those questions that have taken taken place um earlier in the chapter yeah so i guess you know if if for those readers who just have read it once this would kind of be that that gratification section where like, ah, okay, I get it. I understand. That makes sense. You know, especially with everything with the guild and the Tistiandi and their motivations and, and things like that. So. Well, anything else you want to add there or you want to take your last section? I have two more sections. Two. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. But no worries. Well then let's not do your last one. (laughs) We'll do our second to last one. Yes. Okay. Um, Sorry watched Crocus enter a house. The dawn just arrived over the horizon. A short while earlier, she had felt the Carvala demon's death, striking her deep within her chest. The mixed feeling she had had about the coin bearer was gone. She knew that he must die. The only thing that remained was the mystery to his actions And to what extent were those actions Opon's influence on the boy? Recalling what she witnessed at the D'Arl's estate, she concludes that the boy and the D'Arl maiden having a love affair was preposterous to her. The question that popped into Sari's head was whether Opon directly influenced the boy's actions. She knew that the answers to these questions would be slow in coming, and she would have to show patience. She had hoped that revealing herself in the garden to Crocus would have spooked the lad, or had at least very, or at the very least, annoyed Opan, if the god's influence was as direct as she speculated. Sari had watched Relic pull Crocus into the alleyway. She also was able to catch the conversation taking place between Marilio and Relic. She couldn't help but wonder that the boy had protectors, and what an odd bunch at that. Assuming that Krupp was some kind of leader, 
and hearing that they were to take Crocus out of the city by orders of their master, she would kill Crocus outside the city once she learned the nature of their plan. She is confident that the protection around this boy would not impede her too much. Her last thoughts were that of Whiskey Jack having to wait longer for her return. She smiles at this thought, knowing full well the squad would be relieved that she was nowhere to be seen. And as for that matter, the threat of Quick Ben and Kalam, well, that would be for another time. I thought it was funny how uh, she she would have to show patience. And then the next line said that uh, it basically tells us the reader that patience was her finest quality. So it just kind of reminds me of like, like crocodiles. They will observe their prey to get like the prey's routine so that they can figure out when best to attack. And like that to me is like the ultimate patience, you know, like even though they're probably hungry as fuck, like they will wait to make sure that their meal is guaranteed. Yeah. You don't want to waste more energy, uh, you know, for something that isn't guaranteed. Right. Right. And I know that um, there was there was some there was some like political thoughts that like sorry has inside of her head. Like she understands kind of like the political nature of Jerusalem. Not well enough, but like she's got like a pretty good understanding of it. And it is said that the DRL is in direct opposition of Turban Orr, who we know wants neutrality with the Malazan Empire. But the DRL maiden's father doesn't, is what I am gathering from that. So she's kind of like, I guess, in this section, putting or connecting the dots. Like, we is Opan directly influencing Crocus to strike up some type of love affair with Chalice, as we you know read earlier, so that he could get in good with her father, who is in direct opposition of Turban Orr. So it's just yeah, it's just so many like small things that she's picking up on which in in essence is telling us the reader these same things we just have to be patient also yes yes (laughs) we do have to be patient but uh did you catch did you catch the uh the eel reference and our theory about the eel in the section I, i did not Ooh. so uh sorry and you know again her you know, mental monologue with herself. She is assuming that Krupp is some kind of leader. So that that couple of words, those few words there brought us brought me back to our conversations on how we think hmm. Krupp is the eel. Interesting. Yeah. I did not catch that. But I, I like that. That might be the, the hill that I'm gonna die on is that 
crux the eel i hope he is yeah because that would it would just feel cool to be right about that well right because i mean it's it's it i mean we still don't nothing's been revealed about the eel so i feel like the hills that we're dying on are valid right uh Gariga, i feel like she's still in sorry some way shape or form she hasn't been mentioned since the first chapter your theory with the eel nothing has been revealed as to who this this character is we've got some of his influence we also haven't heard from his circle breaker in a while no we have not i know that there was a couple of sections where we got his perspective but i don't know if that time in the docks where he like goes to his like little shack thing and shuts himself off from the world was his way of of maybe getting the fuck out but i don't know anyway i'm done with that tangent (laughs) you go on whatever tangent you want for as long as you want are you sure like 95 percent sure okay okay as long as it's that but um the threat of quick ben and kalam what do you think? Do you? I, I mean, I have a feeling that it has to do with the fact that they know that she was able to pick up on Quick Ben's link to Shadow Throne. Is what are your thoughts? I I, I don't really know. I guess um, I feel like it's one of those things I just need to see play out. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, what about any of the thoughts about the, the demon dying? Like the fact that like sorry could feel that like feel that so strongly. I I, I guess I, maybe it's cause you know, Cotillion and Amanus are working together. So do you think that like demons are maybe part of like the Shadow Thrones Empire? I don't know. I don't I, I don't know if I thought about that. I'm not sure. Hmm. They could be. I just... I mean, I guess we've, we've only had a brief glimpse into that, so it's not like we saw a bunch of them running around, you know? Right. Well, I mean, are these hounds demons? Or are they just oversized hounds? I guess. Well, they're not natural, right? Right. So I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I guess just food for thought. I just... It's interesting to me that it was so impactful to her that she was able to like sense that this demon was dying and not necessarily in like a normal dying, but like, like, like death amongst death. Uh, Yeah. Is, is the way that the section made it sound is that like, like dead forever kind of a thing, like couldn't even be raised again, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it sounded like it was pretty much done for. Yeah. I think we get further uh, confirmation of that, or at least a pretty good idea. I think so. But yeah, um, I guess those are those are the only things that I had about that section. Sorry, it's just being okay. a stalker creeper. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But yeah, if you want to take our way to your last section, we can. Yeah. 
Baruch's migraine was subsiding. Whatever presence had been in the city was gone now. He was certain it was a conjuring and it smelt like a demon, but there had been more. He had nearly been driven unconscious by its death scream, which brought his guards running. He was now sitting in his chair. Roald entered and said he had a visitor. At this hour, it was Anamanda Rake. He entered with Baruch's demon in tow. Rake said it was following him. The demon was shaking and Baruch said it was on a mission for him, but he had no idea it would involve Rake. He asks why he was in the middle of an assassin's war. Rake replies, well, why not? I started it. He smiled at Baruch and says he doesn't know the Empress as well as he does. Baruch asks for an explanation. Rake asks who is likely to know of his secret council? Who would benefit most from his removable, removal, excuse me, and who is capable of killing him? He did not answer. He asks, asks Rake if the Empress seeks out Vorkin, a contract to offer, to offer her. He replied on him and all of the other high mages. The Empress also sent a claw, mostly to make contact with the master assassin. Rake wanted to prevent the contact, even though he wasn't completely certain of the intent. Baruch says he sent out his own assassins to wipe out the guild. Flush her out and then what? Kill her? All based on a suspicion? Rake said the demon's report would confirm this, but they prevented a claw from making contact with the guild. And is he suggesting that killing Vorkin and the guild members is a bad thing? Baruch says, uh, yes, actually it is, and I may not know the Empress as well as you know her, but I for damn sure know this city better than you ever will. To you, it's just another battleground in your war with the Empress. Rake asks to be enlightened on the matter. Baruch says the council does have a vital role in the city. They may be petty and bicker, but it is where things get done. What's that have to do with the assassins? Well... They're the grease to the squeaky wheel. Without the option of assassination, the noble families would have destroyed themselves and set the city to civil war long ago. They are a measure of control on arguments and vendettas and usually, uh, usually, end, usually bloodshed is too messy for the likes of nobility. Rake asks if he thinks Forkin would listen to an offer from the Empress. After all, Lassine gives many conquered cities to assassins, at least a third of them so far. Baruch is pissed. He's pissed because Rake did not consult with them, and that will not be tolerated. Rake says he didn't answer the questions. Baruch says he doesn't know, and that is his answer on all three questions. Rake says he would believe him if he were only an alchemist and nothing more. Baruch asks why he would think he's anything but just a regular old alchemist. Rake says he's not used to arguing without seeing the other person flinch, and he's also not used to being addressed as an equal. Baruch, thinks, Baruch says that there are many paths to ascendancy. Rake apologizes for not informing him, but didn't think it was very important until tonight, as he had been acting on a hunch. Baruch asks about the presence he felt tonight. Rake says it was one of Tatron's Corvola demons, released by a claw wizard. Berg asks if it's gone and where. Rake says it's out of anyone's reach. Berg mentions Rake's sword, 
Ah, yes, he says. He received the heads as promised of the Wizards of Pale. Rig asks if they protested, and Baruch explained the, the options to them, and they did not protest. Rake laughed, and it chilled Baruch's blood. I didn't understand the whole two wizards. The heads of the two wizards. What was that in reference to again? Do you remember? Uh, when they were at Pale, he wanted to kill them, but they escaped, so he was like tracking them down. Oh, got it. So Baruch tracked them down? Yeah, I think he knew who they were or where they were. Um, and Ray kind of gave him an ultimatum, you know, if you don't get me these guys or, you know, or else type deal. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I remember reading that a couple of times and I'm like, I don't, I don't remember what this was pertaining to. Yeah. I feel like this section puts a nice little cap on Rake's intentions as far as the guild. Like, I'm not left with any more questions about why he did it. Yeah, he's going to wreck their day. Right. And wreck it, he did. <laughs> he did yeah. definitely wreck it. But I feel like the most interesting part of this section was the whole, I'm not used to being talked to as an equal. Like, how fucked up is that? That most of his interactions, the other person is flinching or wincing in some way, shape, or form around rake yeah so this is like what i was talking about earlier you know that i didn't really pick up the first time you know that i mean rake's like kind of like a appears to be like a demigod or something kind of right like yeah that's what i'm getting to and so baruch is kind of in the same vein of things like i did not like for whatever that just flew over my head um but then there's just kind of that aha moment where I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, he says there's many paths to ascendancy. And I was like, oh, okay then. But does that mean that Baruch then is on the same level as Rake? Or is it just like Baruch is, is that experienced slash confident? Like, is he a god living among men? Or a demigod living among men and just like some for whatever reason just has like a soft spot for the city of Jerusalem. Like he's just kind of yeah. I don't know, it's hard to put into words. But I feel like he's if he's not on equal footing, so to speak, that he's close with Anamander, you know, close to a similar position. Yeah. And it, I mean, it further drives the point home that like Baruch, obviously he doesn't he doesn't have his own fucking Death Star he's floating around in, but <laughs> right. But it just, I think it it further drives the point because like I've always been kind of like not weary about Baruch, but just I didn't really know where to put him, and I think that this like ends that debate for me and that he is probably the highest Jerusalem stan has if that makes sense like like baruch is the top power in Jerusalem stan is what i'm getting from this like he is the one who is calling the shots granted they're kind of from like behind the scenes but 
that's where I'm going with that. Yeah, I I agree. But I think yeah, he's 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 got to be pretty much top of the food chain here. I, I mean, he's got some influence for sure. Yeah. I just feel like the section has a lot, a lot. Like it concludes a lot of things, but at the same time, like I think it opens it up for so much more to happen as well. Yeah, it does. And we'll have to see what kind of trouble we get ourselves into here. Right, yeah. But I mean, I guess outside of that, that that's kind of all I really, really had for this section. I feel like I should have more, but it was conclusive, but at the same time left some things open to be hopefully revealed in other chapters. Yeah. Yeah, and it was cool just to see, you know, somebody like, you know, Baruch wasn't really like backing down, you know, to this hulking huge guy, you know, like probably felt intimidated, but he's kind of standing up to him, you know? Yeah. And I feel like now that I'm thinking about this next section, which we can get to when we're we're done talking about this, but I think we should swing back to that after we read this next section. All right. Well, I'm ready for you to bring it home. Sweet. So at the distant sound, Krupp rose, the fire flickering before him. The heat somehow seemed less. Krupp sighs and then talks to himself, making a comment about hearing the distant sound and wondering if he knew the source. Karul from beside him said, perhaps. Krupp was startled by this and turned to face the elder and God. He tells Karul that he thought he was long gone, but welcomes his company. The God nods and tells Krupp that Tattersail is well and that Rivi protects her. And now a power warlord now shelters her. Krupp says that this was good, but again his head turns, following distant sounds. Cruel asks what it is that Krupp hears. Krupp says that he hears wheels and chains and the groaning of slaves. Cruel tells Krupp that its name is Dragnipur, and it is a sword. Krupp frowns at this and asks how a sword could be wagons and chains. Kerul answers this question by telling Krupp that it was forged in darkness. It's chains, it chains souls that existed before the coming of light. Krupp, its wielder is here. In Krupp's mind, the deck of dragons flashed. He saw the image of half man, half dragon, the knight of high house darkness, also known as the son of darkness. Fighting a shiver of fear, Krupp says that the knight is in Jerujasan. Karul says in, around, and above the city, the elder god faces Krupp and tells him that he is a lodestone of power, and he is in a league with Master Baruch and the Torud Cabal, explaining that Jerujasan's secret rulers have found a two-edged ally. Dragon Purr has tasted a demon's soul this night, and it never stays thirsty for long. Krupp asks if anyone can withstand it. Karul says that none to his knowledge, but that was from long ago, when the sword was first forged. But he couldn't speak to the present. 
Carrie Rule says that he has one last small piece of information for Krupp and tells him to beware of the mission Baruch is sending him on as Elder, Elder Magic brews anew. It is Talan of the Amass, and what it touches is Jaghut Elder Magic. Krupp stays out of their way and protects the coin bearer. What is about to come is as dangerous as the knight and his sword. Krupp acknowledges that he will be careful. So this is kind of where I'm going with the whole uh, Baruch kind of standing up or nonetheless being like an equal to Rake is, I and I feel like this isn't a surprise, but maybe it is. Uh, I Dragon Purr is Rake's sword is the association that I'm getting here. Right. Yeah. So when Karul is telling Krupp that long before none could match it, but he wasn't able to, he wasn't able to say anything now. Like he couldn't speak to presently. So I think that like, based on the last section, it's very possible that Baruch, that Baruch uh, may be able to be the one that matches Rake. I just I thought it was interesting that we're seeing Rake referred to as a knight. Yeah, which goes back to your demigod comment. Like a knight. Right, but you think like a knight, you know, is supposed to be like good and protects the people and like he's just out there fucking shit up. Right. But isn't that also what knights kind of do in the name of whoever their king is? True. Yeah. It was just, I remember reading that and I was just like, to me, it felt like a weird association. What What was a weird association? Just that he is like a, a knight. True. But, I, I mean, I guess... Yeah, you're right. It is weird. It's kind of a weird association. And this is definitely new information. But, I mean, the Tistiandi, we know our elder. We, we know that they, you know, use an elder magic. So, I guess maybe it's not as far-fetched. Maybe. I guess my question just goes to is, like, how did he obtain the sword? Like... If back in the day it devoured souls that existed before light, that like this has to be fucking ancient, right? So he, did he forge it or did someone else forge it and he just killed them? Or like how did he obtain the sword? Yeah, I don't know. But that would that'd be cool. I, I hope we find out. Because it's, I mean, it's like, that's got a pretty badass name. And like, I'd like to see, I'd like to see your, like, your ideas on what this sword would look like if you drew it out. I'm sure I could maybe concept it out. Um, but I guess the only, I mean, the sword's name is Dragon Purr. In the flash of the, uh, the, the deck of dragons, right? we get a half-man, half-dragon vision 
who is the knight of House Darkness. So we've got a sword named Dragon Purr. We've got the knight of the High House Darkness, or the son of Darkness, right? Who is half man, half dragon. At this point in time, I think that both of you and I can agree that this is Anomander Rake. But also, oh, yeah. but also Call, right? And even Krupp's, um, Krupp's realization or the information that he found out about the dragons that live in Moonspawn. I think that, like, that that makes sense. And I think the red one that Krupp read in the reading in the last chapter is Anomander Rake. Because there were like five blue dragons and then one red one. And I think that is to symbolize like Anamander's wrath or his his anger or his his night of house darkness kind of a thing. Because it's weird that there's only one red dragon. So like that's kind of where I'm going with that. It's an interesting thought. But also, did you catch up or did you cap? Or catch the the hear like they hear the wheels and the chains and the groaning of slaves, because Baruch hears that too. In the last section, and I think I did not catch. Oh, okay. My thought on that is that you know, Dragon Purr has something to do with stealing souls. So I think that like when Anamander Rake killed Pearl it basically devoured its soul and chained it to the uh to the sword and the the soul that is taken is essentially like enslaved to the sword which would then tie back to why sorry felt such a like permanent death and why baruch was able to hear this as well in I think it had something to do with his migraine. But yeah, there's lots of association and, and so much so much information just in this like very small page of this very last section of this chapter. And again, it's just got me so excited for what's next. Like I'm I'm dying to read on. Well I finally have that chance. And and I like how you connect some of these dots that I don't and then enlighten me on them. I try. I try. You do a good job. Thanks, man. You do too. But well, I don't know. Yeah, you do. You come up with some things that I haven't thought of. It goes. It goes both ways. Right. But again, it just all goes back to our motivation with this podcast, and that is just—it's just a a visceral reaction to what it is that we've read. It's a very real, you know, nothing. We don't know anything about what's happening. So all we have is the information that we have. And I think that gives us the uniqueness that will hopefully set us apart from other podcasts who are covering this content. Right. But yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty satisfied with um, this chapter. Yeah, and like you said, I'm excited to read this next one. 
And uh, we're starting a new sub book here. What the Gadrobi Hills? Yep, yep. So this is the last of the sub book, The Assassins, which I didn't really understand at first. I was just like, why is the sub book called Assassins? But now I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. So it'd be cool to move on and see something else here. Yeah, and based on you know just the title of the next sub book. Uh, I, I'm assuming some things are going to unfold uh, with Lucine and or not Lucine, but Lorne and Tool, Gnose, Talk, and our uh, our you know folks from Jerusalem heading out there. Right. Yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll be seeing. I would think we'd be seeing something from all of them. But who knows? You know, uh, lots of things get thrown in different directions in this book so maybe maybe not you know what i just ca- i just came up with something oh what is it gano's nose gano's nose also that's dumb. no no that was great uh you honestly i've that has popped into my head more than once i'm just glad you're the first to say it <laughs> <laughs> so i'm pretty sure that i've mentioned it to my partner a few times. She's rolling her eyes and shaking her head. Um, <laughs> but uh, also, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but you know how we, we with Whiskey Jack, had a slip up where I almost said Whiskey Dick? Yep. Uh, I had another one of those moments when I was summarizing uh, some of Shadow Throne's parts, and I wrote Shadow Thong. <laughs> <laughs> I was screwed. That's not. I was trying to think of what you might have been able to do, and that is not. I, I did not know what to expect there, so you exceeded expectations. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that uh, concludes concludes this for us. Um. But yeah. We can be found on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify. Yes, and then as far as the socials, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search uh, D&J's Epic Quest. Um, Twitter is by far the most active. Um, don't seem to get much interaction on Facebook. Looks like there's a little bit on Instagram. I tried messing with that, but not really my thing so we're growing um appreciate everybody following along and having a good time with us but it would be cool to you know maybe see a review um you know i'm not pleading for a five-star review or anything like that but just uh you know some feedback on on the podcast side of things um I know I listen to some other podcasts and I know they say that, you know, rating and reviewing helps get things out to others. So makes it more discoverable. So if anybody wants to do that, whatever you feel is a fair rating um, and just leave us, leave us an honest review. We'd love to read it. Yes, we would. Yes. All right, man. Well, I guess uh, till next time. Talk to you later, bud. Later, man.